Welcome to Budo, the Way of the Warrior podcast. This podcast is a collection of historical and philosophical references, contemplations, lectures, and exchanges with David M. Valadez, his students, and guests. Podcasts are recorded on the mat at the Ascension Center in Southern California and in studio. These podcasts are provided to cultivate the warrior on the way and to add light to their path. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's podcast. Um, This is going to be my third part in an effort and an attempt to outline a context of a particular nature. So let's see how am I going to do this. I in in essence this podcast right is for my own deshi. I am of the position that there is not one aikido and I'll be making that point um more firmly as we continue to record podcast but I as a dojo cho, have the responsibility and the duty to let my own deshi know what is my take on Aikido, or more pointedly, what is my Aikido. And this is because they have, through social contract, assigned for themselves the task of understanding my Aikido. If you are following along in this conversation, in this attempt, you may, even though your Aikido is not my Aikido, to the non-Deshi listener, you may find some ways of either answering questions that my Aikido brings up for your Aikido, which will refine your Aikido, and that's a good thing. You may be motivated even to adopt answers from my Aikido and apply them to your Aikido. But if you're following the podcast, I think you can see at this point where I'm coming from and hopefully then where I'm going. And in particular, I am slowly making the case or, for my deshi, I am slowly presenting my position that O-sensei, the person that we today, well, at least most of us, designate as the founder of Aikido, regardless if it's our Aikido or someone else's Aikido, I'm presenting the case that O-sensei was a mystic Not in the modern sense of the word, where mysticism denotes something bad, um, something untrustworthy, something hocus-pocus, or something of magic 
of having a magic nature, something that is inconsistent with our scientific epistemy and scientific methodology. That is not how I'm using the word mystic. I'm using the word mystic as it is used in the science of religious studies and also as it was used by people who were writing about what that was and thinking about what that was at the time that O-sensei was practicing his mysticism. And in particular, I am summing that up as, I'll just put it briefly here, that O-sensei was a practitioner in the, let's say, the psycho-physio-socio practice of self-detachment or of deconstructing the self-subject-object construct or, or in or as a practitioner in the practice of reconciling the subject-object dichotomy. From there, as a mystic, his means, or what eventually became his means, was his practice of what we would look at today and go, oh, that's, he's doing Aikido. Related to this, I'm making the case that there was some sort of epistemic shift that happened around the same time period and that in a way predisposes us to not understand what we were looking at when O-sensei is doing what we would call waza. And that some sort of ignorance has creeped in when we look upon his waza practice and conclude he's doing Aikido. There's some sort of gap there that happens, some sort of semantic gap that has led us astray and has us doing one thing when he was doing another thing entirely. So I've done two recordings on the mystical nature of O-sensei's practice. One is a commentary on his radio interview. Another one is on a lecture he did titled Kanagara no Jutsu. And then there'll be this third one, which is an interview that O-sensei did in 1932. And I got this interview from a website called, um, I believe it's Aikido Sangenkai. It might be Sangenkai Aikido. Um, and it is a kind of blog put on by Christopher Lee. If you're not familiar with Mr. Lee's work, you should definitely familiarize yourself with it. You should go visit his website, Aikido Sangenkai. And you should read everything on there. 
Um, I think that Mr. Lee is really taking some of the work that Stanley Prannon started and, and he is running with it. And it is to the, to the benefit of all of us. I cannot recommend that website enough. So Christopher Lee came upon this interview in 1932 of O-sensei by a very interesting character. His name is Kanzo Miura. And the name of the article is Shinrei no Hyaku Genshutsu no Chojin, which Christopher um, is translating as A Leap of the Spirit, Emergence of the Superhuman. Some interesting notes about Mr. Miura, the person doing the interview. Um, you're going to see that nexus that I bring up often about theosophy because later uh, Miura starts to translate some key works by the Theosophical Society. And you can see even here in 1932 a couple things that are very interesting and I'll just lightly comment on them. Um, you could already see, even though it's, it's after the war when he translates these major works by the Theosophical Society, you can already see in 1932, however, that he is coming from this theosophical position that there is a mysticism, as I described it, that is common to the world and that is for the benefit of each individual and also by that benefit, a benefit to the world. You will also see that he is not as pro-government or pro-fascist as one might think because socially... Um, there really is no greater rebellion or revolution than the mystical experience. And as a result, you'll see he has some very interesting things to say, even on the eve of World War II, uh, about what's going on in the world and what's going on in his country in particular. I think that's important and may, I may comment on that later or maybe Mr. Lee will look at this from this point of view or, or some other, somebody else who's going to do the work. But it's very easy to see that uh, O-sensei on the one hand is hanging out with people we know to be pro-fascist, um, racist, um, right-wing, extreme right-wing. But history is always more complicated than that. And 
there really is something that requires an insight into social theory when you're looking at the effect that the mystical experience has politically. That it's not so simple a thing ever um, for a person to deconstruct the subject-object dichotomy. And this is because material systems of power rely heavily upon that. And any person who moves beyond that has in essence subverted the power structures of his time or her time. Um, when you look at religious figures of this kind, of the mystical nature, you can't help but to see um, that they were also causing huge upheaval in the societal structures of their time, that in some ways they always are revolutionists. And I think O-sensei fits in that bill here. And definitely the author of this piece who did the interview is also coming from that vein. So I'll read this. I will comment on this as we go along. Um, but what I want to do in subsequent podcasts is I feel that we have to draw a distinction between what I would like to call institutional Aikido, which is the Aikido that we all think of and speak with and, and imagine with. That there is this thing, Aikido, but I'm, I want to designate it. I want to call it institutional Aikido. I'll go into what that is. Um, but I want to make a distinction between that and O-sensei's martial art or even O-sensei's Aikido. I don't think they're the same. I'm not saying at this point if one is better than the other. I think they do different things. And I think I'll end up concluding that in light of there being no one Aikido, it is right now and will remain so a matter of a person choosing for themselves what they want their Aikido to be. And that will not change whether the choice is between institutional Aikido or O-sensei's martial art. I'd also like this third look at O-sensei's practice to set up a much larger conversation on the practicality of Aikido, which would include, for me, the martial practicality of Aikido. And I think when you're going to tackle that subject, you're going to have to define your terms. 
And I think that is a good way for my deshi to understand my Aikido. When I was in graduate school, at the time I was completing my master's thesis, it was quite a, quite a large work. Um, and I was working the entire time with my academic mentor as I was writing it, getting direction all throughout the process. And upon completion, I felt I could just show him, since he had seen it all, um, maybe he would read it and proof it, you know, have some minor questions. But my academic mentor was um, himself mentored in the classical, nowadays, classical uh, French academic context. And it is quite a severe context. So after I completed, I turned it into him. I meet him at his office, and he opens up to page one, gets out a red pen, and basically he circles every single term one at a time and asking me to define that word. In his academic rearing, the capacity to define words that make up one's argument is proof that you understand your own argument. And I think that we will need to do that here as well. We will need to define words like Aikido. We will need to define words like martial and fighting, self-defense, all of these things before we can get to what Aikido is for each of us. So we're headed that way. Again, let me just repeat here. Please take a look or listen to the podcast on Osensei's radio interview and then the episode on Kanagara no Jutsu. And I will put links in the descriptions for this podcast to those podcasts. So here we go, on with the piece. Um, I'll tell you when O-sensei speaking, and when it's, some, when it's not O-sensei speaking, then it is Miura speaking. Miyamoto Musashi is long deceased. And so it may be that the secrets of that extraordinary Budo have not been received by the ordinary people of today. Well, that's, let's stop there. That's interesting, right? So in 1932, somebody was already thinking that the skills of the past are not being transmitted or embodied by the current population. There's some sense of a gap. I think that's important because later you'll see in subsequent episodes that I would agree. This gap 
did happen quite early on. I imagine this gap always existed on the on the one hand, but it certainly was compounded as we entered into the modern era. And I think that what we have done in the face of this gap is we have tried to fill it with something other than what the founder was doing. And this is pretty much the position that Miura sees in 1932. Back to the piece. Accordingly, I would like to speak just a little about a modern figure who is stopped by some to have surpassed Musashi, Mr. Moritaka Ueshiba. So at this time, Ueshiba was using this reading of his name, Moritaka, but it's so sensei. Mr. Ueshiba currently has a dojo in the Ushigoma area of Tokyo. This gentleman was hidden from the public eye until two or three years ago, and that this astonishing true Budo existed in the world and was, no, and was unknown. So here you see Miura's drawing a distinction. There's Budo. This is what everybody's practicing. Everyone's doing it. They put on their hakama. They put on their gi. They put their belt. They go to the dojo. They start class. They bow. They practice. But there's something else. And that something else is true. And it's related to what he saw in Musashi, who was held by this time as a kind of ideal figure for being a budoka. Back to the piece. It is rare for an authentic personage to appear in the world. In this world, there are useless people who take over the country and teach their evil ways. So there's that comment on his own current governmental state. And I think also you, you see um, something that has remained true throughout Budo history where he says it is rare. So Budo... Um, Budo as a technology of the self has its roots in several of what several traditions of what later come to be known as Confucian, Taoist, and Buddhist, etc. At at the time that it was developing, you have to understand that people didn't think in these academic headings. Um, so I tend for my own practice, not to use those terms, but maybe as pointers for people to understand. But as the technology of the self, what all of these traditions had in common was that the ways these technologies, they were open to everyone. Every single human had within them the capacity to do these things. So, for example, uh, there was even a kind of particular allowance for being human if if not an outright requirement to be human so in certain um, buddhist cosmological breakdowns and uh, awakening for example could not be achieved by even a god it had you had to wait until you were karmically scheduled at, to be born 
or reborn as a human being, then, then awakening could be possible for you. But even as universal as this capacity was, all of these traditions said it, not everyone's going to do it. That has always been a fact of the training. And that, that idea, I don't think it is, it's not a doctrine. It, it is what you see when you observe the countless masses that are trying. You can see the same idea even in a, in a Buddhist breakdown of time with Mappo and Shobo where the Buddha is reportedly stating that at, at a, in a certain time period, it's still possible to use the way in order to reach awakening. But a, after a certain time period, the teaching will become so corrupt that no human being can reach it. And all this to tell you that it is not inevitable that should you enter into these technologies of the self, that you will thereby reach the ideals of these technologies of the self. So you will not reach awakening, enlightenment. You will not become a Taoist sage or a Confucian gentleman. Um, you will not reach Takamusaiki etc. It's rare. I think that's going to become important later as we go on. Back to the piece. Regardless if it is the past or the present, inside or outside the country, a righteous rule has never been realized from the beginning of things. Military rule always dominates nations. Uh, there's some more of that political criticism. Few people know that in the early spring of 1930, Mr. Ueshiba participated in contests at the Imperial Japanese Army Academy. No matter how many powerfully built 5th and 6th Don Judoka stepped up, they were broken and played with like kittens. Even when the contest began, with three strong men grasping his neck and arms, they would be blown away like pieces of paper. No matter their rank in kendo, whoever came was unable to touch him with their swords, and they'd be struck and fall with a thud. The young representatives of the Kodokan were like children before Tengu, handled without issue. Jigoro Kano, when questioned as to just what it was that the Kodokan was teaching is said to have stated, Kodokan is not Budo. It is simply physical education. That is how astounded he was by Mr. Ueshiba. All right, let's stop there. This is very, very interesting because it's an inverse of what we of some of the things we have today. So, for example, 
1932, let's pick one of the easier ones, but also one of the strange ones. In 1932, there was some idea that if you did kendo, you were not necessarily a sword specialist. Let's go even further. In 1932, there was some sense that you were not a bamboo sword touch contest specialist, that you were in some way more universally a martial artist. I think that's important because I think the specialization of the arts is also a modern thing. And O-sensei was living in a time when that specialization was starting but not yet cemented. Of course, there were always, you know, you would train in this weapon or that weapon. I'm talking about at the level of public imagination. I'm talking at the level of social structures. I remember remember a story that Chiba Sensei said once where... Um, he got in a kind of personal bout with somebody and... It was in judo, if I remember correctly. And uh, this was Chiba Sensei's senpai. And Chiba Sensei had trained really hard and, and got really good. And at one point, he was able to throw his senpai. And this made the senpai very angry. And he kind of uttered something like, I still have my sword. You can't beat my sword. And so they challenged him. He was allowed to have his sword and you could see there the same kind of structural construct wherein Chiba Sensei was like, okay, yeah, you, this is just fighting and you have a sword and, and now come in with your sword. Today, this would be unheard of. No, and everyone would go, what, what are you talking about? Every kendo person would go, you know, that's not really fair. Every Aikido person would, tend to go, that's not really fair. Why don't we either do empty hand or, or armed with our swords or our bulkhead? Because time has passed and constructs have shifted. Specialization has occurred. And what we do not realize until it hits us in the face is that the flip side of specialization is ignorance. And so with the increase in specialization, you have an increase in ignorance. In my opinion, this is what we saw first and foremost in the eruption of uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu on the national landscape of the United States. It wasn't an invented art. There's no more practical moves than what had existed, but there was an ever-growing ignorance on the part of other arts as they became specialists 
and in most cases specialists at winning contests, which were, their, which were themselves reductions of each of these arts. It's how you get striking arts that have no concept of takedown defenses and have no idea what to do when you're now horizontal. So it's interesting that there was this sense that O-sensei's art, O-sensei's Aikido, didn't seem to be specialized. I don't know from this interview if O-sensei was given a sword or not, a shinai or not, I don't know. But at the least, he was expected to now fence. Another thing that's quite different from today, um, today, fifth and sixth on judoka in a one-on-one contests following judo rules would clean the floor up with any or let's I'm not going to put any but overwhelmingly most of the aikidoka yet it was different in 1932 it was so different that the founder of judo made the excuse that Judo is just physical education and what O-sensei was doing is something else and it's called Budo. That is shocking. Shockingly different from today. But it lets us gain some insight into the thinking here. By contrast then... Kano is saying he's he and what he said made sense to the author made sense to to Miura so he's not he's not inventing a language here he's not presenting a revolutionary idea he is saying something that is an expression of the common assumptions of that time and that is that an art can be Simply physical education, something akin to exercise. And that an art can also be something more than that, or at least other than that. And it seems a a short step to say that in this case, whether it be other than physical exercise, it is more than physical exercise in the sense that he's giving a greater value to it. My guys lost because they only know physical exercise and O-sensei was able to treat them like kittens because he knows more than physical exercise. There's another construct I see here in Kano's statement. It is the following. 
as O Sensei's Budo is more than physical education, it is nonetheless capable of manifesting itself both physically and martially. And that that's Budo. In 1932, that's what made sense. That is how people understood O-sensei's martial art. It was more than physical education. It was more than just wrestling and levers and fulcrums. And nonetheless, it was able to manifest itself physically and martially. And here martially we mean in the sense of it achieved victory over another in a contest of violence. So right here, looking ahead a little, you can see that is not... the overwhelming, generally accepted definition of Aikido today. Which is why I say fifth and sixth dons today will generally wipe the floor with any Aikidoka. Additionally, today, if you have somebody who has an Aikido that is more than just physical exercise, they may claim as much, but what they don't do generally is this more than cannot be manifested physically or martially. It's, it's more of a philosophy. I'll go into why that's the case. It, for me, it has epistemic reasons. But I think right here in, in Kano observing O-sensei, you already have the outline for what O-sensei's Aikido was or O-sensei's martial art was. And you have the base for noting what we generally do today and how it is different. Back to the piece. A top-ranked American boxer named Kongamu was traveling through Europe on a Musho Shugyo. That's a like he's going around, he's challenging people to fight to see if he can best them. He appeared before Mr. Weishiba, who was only 157 centimeters tall, with his massively powerful 193 centimeter frame and lunged right in with a jab. He went flying through the air upside down as if playing with a child and landed with a thud, handled without issue. 
he withdrew while expressing his extraordinary amazement again and again. Let's stop there. So here's another thing not like the past. You can see again that position that he's not a specialist. His art is not confined to the training constructs of Shomenuchi, Yokomenuchi, Ski. He does not require any kind of so-called outside-the-box application and or any kind of mixing or adding of martial arts to his martial art in order to deal with the jab of a boxer. I think this is very important, um, not only for the reasons just stated, but there is something quite particular to the boxing jab. And namely it is that it is not a strike wherein territoriality is practiced or, or wherein spinal displacement is practiced. The jab is a kind of feeler, range-finding weapon. And even before uh, I was in Aikido, you could tell by the Kihon Waza and the way they were practiced by the general population that a jab would be quite problematic for most Aikidoka and remains so to this day. Yet here it is. An American boxer, top-ranked, who felt confident enough to travel through Europe on a warrior pilgrimage, challenging people. So he's probably not a crappy boxer. He's probably pretty good with a pretty decent jab. And when he threw the jab, he went flying through the air upside down. And O-sensei threw him as if playing with a child. So when we read that, uh, we have two possibilities. We can look at it and look at the fact today that nobody seems capable of doing this today. Just generally speaking, let's just speak like that. Generally speaking, it appears that people cannot do this today amongst the ranks of our Aikidoka population. It appears that we could go around from dojo to dojo and throw jabs and basically pop people in the face over and over again with ease. Or at the least that we would not be thrown, especially if we had a jab capable of generating within us a confidence to travel to another continent and challenge fighters.
we, we can look at this fact today and we can go back and go, you know what? This story's made up. This is bullshit. That's, and that's how we explain it to ourselves. That Mura is, got, is writing here some sort of fluff piece. He's not right. Who knows if Kano really said that. Did anyone, was anyone there when he said it? What did he really say? I heard in another interview he said this. And we can have these two, this, this discrepancy wiped away. But I would put before you another way of looking at things, that there is a gap between what we're doing today, generally, and what O-sensei did in 1932. And that this explains the discrepancy. Back to the piece. It was due to events like these that the world at last became aware of the person, Mr. Uishiba, and that respect for him as a superhuman budoka and kendoka came to be expressed. In the beginning, Mr. Ueshiba was taught by Sokaku Takeda, a budoka hidden from the world, and at the time that he parted from his teacher, he had not yet reached the sacred, sacred grounds of budo. However, that Mr. Ueshiba was later taught those secrets in a dream. Moreover, the secrets of kendo, judo, sumo, boxing, and more came with them, all becoming one in a demonstration of the true way of the kami. All right, let's stop there. It's interesting that here in 1932, if we want to say that Miura is doing a puff piece, he seems to be repeating here, the Daito Ryu line and not the Aikikai line, which is O-sensei parted from his teacher, Sokaku Takeda, before he understood Daito Ryu, before he understood those inner secrets. But he goes on to say he did get them and he got them on his own. They came to him in a dream. And I don't have the original Japanese here, so I wonder if this is dream like we're thinking or vision like a mystic might be thinking. And the difference there is some sort, is the mystical experience versus a kind of dream like, you know, you go to bed and you have a eureka moment right before you wake up in your sleep and now you have figured out how to come up with this better business model. Another interesting thing here is that Miura is again talking about a lack of specialization. And what we would say today is, oh, look, oh, he, oh, sensei was a mixed martial artist. He's got some weapons work. He's got some in-close grappling. He's got some wrestling. He's got some striking, right? Moreover, the secrets of kendo, judo, sumo, boxing, and more came with them. I don't think that's what's going on. I think when you have something like mixed martial arts, it's the product of a history of specialization. 
But I don't think that specialization is what pre-modern martial artists were struggling with. Fighting was fighting. I think what Miura is talking about is that O-sensei's insights, his embodiment of what Kano called Budo and what Miura earlier called true Budo, that his insights are not technical, not artistic, but personal. That they apply to the individual in and of himself, not to his artistic, stylistic garbs. And so when the individual achieves this state, he's or she is able to address all of the combat concerns. And I think that's why Miura ends this paragraph here with the phrase, all becoming one in a demonstration of the true way of the kami. Right? Because he's not saying all becoming one in the real martial art, all becoming one in the practical martial art, mixed martial arts. He's not talking about that. This is an ancient way of dealing with the infinite variation of how human versus human violence can be manifested. The problem is not one of stylistic cross-dressing, but rather let's fix the individual to get beyond all stylistic preferences. Back to the piece. One day I asked Mr. Ishiba three questions. All right, here we go to the interview. Here's Miura. I have been researching Miyamoto Musashi, starting with the problem of mysticism. Oh, that's weird. Someone else had the same idea as me. 1932. As far as Japan goes, there are those great philosophers, artists, and men who understand things in a purely mystical way such as Musashi and other great Kenjutsuka. In that vein, there are three things that I would like to ask you. First, to the eye of an observer, your kendo appears to be completely electric, like the lightning movement, movements of the Tengu. Is there a method to it? Or do you attack the opponent instinctively through some hidden power? Let's stop there. If you haven't seen... Um, these interviews on YouTube, there was a panel put together. Um, I think it's, I'm so, I'm going to put the link in the, in the, uh, episode notes and there's three parts and it's very interesting because these people that are on the panel, all very skilled, all very much worth listening to and all very reasonable are trying to reverse engineer what Ola Sensei was doing and thinking by simply looking at his 
performance. Uh, and if you don't have text like this, what are you going to do? That's what you're going to do. There is undoubtedly going to be some sort of degree of reverse engineering that we moderns are going to have to do in order to move from what I am going to call institutional Aikido to O-sensei's Aikido or O-sensei's martial arts, should we want to do that. So that's what these this panel is doing. And they're, they notice the same thing. They're looking at O-sensei and first they look at it from a stylistic point of view. And they're like, oh, this is kind of goofy, kind of, you know, what the hell is he doing? There's no stylistic um, consistency with what O-sensei is doing. If you look across the gambit of fencing styles in Japan, but they do end up commenting upon there is something else going on there, particularly when they watched him, watch O-sensei do his fencing with a partner. So when they make the first position, they're looking at him move the sword by himself. But then when they see him with the partner, they can see that he's playing very much with the uke, that he's constantly keeping the initiative um, and toying. And these gentlemen have experience in fencing. And so and I, as anybody hood, would, when you first begin fencing, um, your master just makes you feel like they know every time you're going to move, they're ahead of you every single time. There's no openings. At the second you move, you've already lost. Um, it's something very common to any type of live training environment. Um, so you can also experience this in Nebwaza or striking, if you're doing boxing, the, you know, these people who are skilled will always maintain the initiative and everything you do just sets yourself up. So they notice that when they're watching O-sensei with this partner on the video. Well, here Miura also saw, he didn't see O-sensei do a one, you know, a single solo demonstration. He saw him in this kind of match. And he reaches the same conclusion. It's electric, like the lightning movements of the Tengu. So myth mythologically, the Tengu are these kind of otherworldly masters of the martial arts. I'm going, I'm going to try to use... Um, you know, general terms and, and modern terms as much as possible because, you know, as I said, my aim is to get my students to understand and the ultimate reason for understanding is that it sometimes, sometimes understanding lends itself to embodiment and to an actual skill set that is action-based. So I don't want to use uh, highly specialized academic definitions, so... I don't need to tell you everything about a Tengu, for example. So again, closing, Miyota asks, is there a method to it, or do you attack the opponent instinctively through some hidden power? He's kind of asking, is it, is it beyond all description or not? 
This was Mr. Ueshiba's answer. There is a definite method. Okay, let's stop there. That's very important. Because if we say that the reason there is a discrepancy between what we see today and what we are reading here about O-sensei's martial art, and we note that the discrepancy exists because we are doing something different generally, we have two choices. One, O-sensei is utilizing a method that we can all have access to, but we are currently not practicing it, hence the discrepancy. Or we can say, O-sensei is just an eruption of genius, and this talent is innate to him and to him alone. So in the former view, that is a way consistent with all of these technologies of the self that predate O-sensei by centuries. There is a means. Take the Four Noble Truths. There is a means. All Taoism, Buddhism, Confucianism, etc., etc. There is a way. Here's the way. There are other traditions throughout history that don't, do not posit this. There's something uniquely special about the founder and no one else can do it. Some traditions are like that. Budo is not one of them. And so as a student of Budo, there really was no way for Ueshiba to come out and say, I am so special that there is no method, I'm just me, and you can't be me, so you can't do it. That would, that would be culturally unimaginable to him. I think Miura asked the question because he has exposed himself through traditions like theosophy to other technologies of the self that posited that there was something special about this person. So certain branches of Christianity, for example, are like that. The poverty of Jesus and the servitude and sacrifice of Jesus is unique to him because he is divine. He is the son of God. And the unsaid statement there is, and you're not. There are traditions within Christianity that didn't hold that view. This, this, that w there are competing views where the idea was at a minimum to worship Jesus at the highest was to imitate him. Even in theosophy, which did posit 
the possibility of mystical experience and the social need for it, they too were looking for a kind of Jesus-like figure. Somebody who was going to be born according to certain prophecies that would come and that would lead the world towards these ends. If memory serves me right, that figure is later came to be known by the name Krishnamurti. I believe the book that he wrote was under the, the first name, Alcyon, something like that. Um, and it's called At the Master's Feet. It's a fantastic book. A lot of people don't know that uh, Bruce Lee's The Tao of Jeet Kune Do was very much a plagiarism of Krishnamurti's thinking. In some cases, Bruce Lee would just change the nouns, keep everything the same. It's not really his fault. I mean, the, the Tao of Jeet Kune Do was a diary not, not meant in all likelihood by Bruce Lee to be published it was just for his thinking and his own edification. I think it was Black Belt Magazine in the 80s or the 70s where they did a cross-comparison of Krishnamurti's thinking. And you could see where Bruce Lee just changed the nouns. So like Krishnamurti might use the noun life and... Bruce Lee would use the noun martial art. The interesting part about Krishnamurti is that he ended up thinking that this idea of this unique, special, innate, miraculous identity that was being assigned to him was actually a kind of bondage that got in the way of a practical living out of the mystical experience. It's a very interesting figure. He ended up starting a, a kind of school or center not far from where I'm located now in the city of Ojai. So if, if you haven't read Krishnamurti, I highly recommend him. But I think... Miura was aware of this other way of thinking and that Ueshiba Osensei could have very well answered, no, 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 I'm the chosen one. That's why I can do it. But he didn't. Osensei says there is a definite method. And Miura goes on to clarify, back to the piece, can that method be learned by everybody? To which Osensei answers, it can. There you have it. As a historian, I'm going to say that the discrepancy we're seeing between what we generally can and cannot do today in light of what is being reported here that O-sensei did, said to have done, I am going to say it's because the method is not being practiced. 
that O Sensei's Aikido is an entirely different art, and I use the word entirely to note these radical distinctions in what is capable today and what is not capable today. These radical distinctions between O Sensei's martial art and institutional Aikido general Aikido today stem from an absence of method. Back to the piece. Muyura is continuing. Even so, where does that quickness come from? Your lightning movements, the sword that strikes like a flash of light, avoiding the powerfully strong hands striking at you and tossing the opponent upside down. These lightning movements... Here, Mr. Ueshiba did not answer my question and instead made this wild statement. Here's what Ueshiba said. Bullets from a gun will not touch me. <laughs> Let's, let, this is, we're going to have to go in a little bit deeper. Okay, so, even so... Where does that quickness come from? Your lightning movements. Okay, so he's looking at O-sensei, and O-sensei always looks to be ahead. I think in real fighting, whether it be anything from gunfighting on down, the actual speed of your limbs is only part of speed of quickness and it's a very small part and oftentimes it can be detrimental to your overall movement so let's just look at a the presentation of a handgun from the holster a quick draw so in law enforcement, we wear retention holsters. I am, I go on duty with a Safari Land ALS holster. My draw at its fastest on a 10-yard target, about, I don't know, six to eight inches square, is generally in the area at its fastest. It's been about 0.86 of a second and generally around a second more times than not. What you realize when you get your drawdown that fast, well, first, the job lets you know how important a draw like that is. A draw that's two seconds, three seconds is pretty much useless. And it is as useless as a draw that comes out in a second but misses the target. Meaning your shot is irrelevant.
But as you try to acquire that skill, you realize that you can only move your arms so fast, first of all. There's only so much limb speed you can do. And there's a negative side to passing the ceiling of your limb speed. In particular, accuracy goes down or even you can mess up your grip by moving too fast to the weapon. And then that in turn will make accuracy go down. Or it can even have it take longer to get your weapon out of your holster. Because in your haste, in your moving too much beyond the ceiling of your limb's speed, you try to draw up at the wrong angle. It catches on the holster, the holster turns on you, the gun gets stuck, and now you've added time to your draw. So you learn that, okay, move your limb fast, but don't move it so fast that you start to suffer these negative consequences, but you still have the problem of speed. Because the first shot generally wins. So you start to see where else you can gain this overall speed to your presentation. And one of the first places you're going to look is in an economy of motion. You're going to take out all wasted motion. So a very common mistake is people will change their spinal alignment as they go to draw. They'll lean to the left or the right or they'll duck down and all this adds hundreds of a second to your time. It also, psychologically, when you're drawing against someone who's drawing against you and you notice that you're falling behind, it will start having you speed up your arm, your limb speed, and then you have all the negative consequences that I discussed earlier. So you try really hard. You move your you you realize how fast you can move your hand. You might have to shift rates as you go. So maybe I move very quickly to the grip, and maybe I slow down to work my retention devices. And maybe I pick up speed again as I'm taking the weapon out of the holster, and maybe I slow down again as I'm coming to gain side picture. And I economize my motion so I don't move anything that does not have to move. And so now your, your, your draw, your presentation might become pretty quick. But you're leaving one thing out. And there's one thing that trumps all of this. It's when do you start the draw? So let's imagine we are in a um, classic... Gary Cooper Western and you're coming down the street and the other guy's coming down the street and you have that draw. And if you did all that right, it's probably going to be a second to sub-second presentation on an ALS holster. But now you're looking the wrong way. 
so you don't see when the other guy starts. So you, when you finally look, you actually started late, and that one second draw it might as well be a ten second draw. Or maybe you can't read the body of the other guy, so you don't know when to go. So you start late again. And you realize that this later thing, this thing of knowing, let's use that word in quotation marks right now, this thing of knowing when to start, is actually more important than any of these other things you've done thus far to increase your speed. That in fact, if you know when to start, you can start to actually move your arms slower, to even move your body, as you're starting your movement earlier. And that's what's going on here. We're going to see in how Sensei talks that he's talking about. He knows ahead of t he knows ahead of what most people know. I came up with something, a very interesting thing. You know, I've been doing martial arts for a long time, and in that time there's a lot of training towards this knowing, still in quotation marks. Part of it is body reading. You know how to read the body. You can see the thing coming. And I notice when I train new students that this is one of their biggest problems. They can't see what's happening as it's happening. They see it after it happened. When you look at those cases where your master maintains the initiative over you, that is what they're doing. They see your movements and you don't see their movements. And I noticed this body reading skill as I entered into the realms of firearms instruction. So currently, I'm certified by the FBI and the state of California as a firearm instructor. And if we do a drill where we go off a shot timer, there's people who consistently do draws out of that same holster that I have in that 0.8 time frame. No problem. One of my best friends in, in the field does it all the time, smokes me all the time. But if we do a drill that requires body language, body reading that you draw when you see the other guy draw, now we bring in this other skill which is a huge part of overall speed or the subjective application and sense of speed. If we do a drill where you can't draw till you see the other guy draw, all of a sudden my overall presentation speed seems faster. 
seems faster than when I go off of a shot timer. And people might look at it and go, oh, it looks like you warmed up and you're ready to go now. And that's not at all that happened is that all of the skill in the body reading plus other things, you're able to start earlier. And starting earlier gives you initiative, makes you seem faster than they are. Even when your arms or your limbs or your body movement is actually moving quite slowly. There's one more thing to draw out from this. The sword that strikes like a flash of light, avoiding the powerfully strong hands striking at you. Okay, that's key. Because I think that's classic jujitsu right there. And I'm using that in the modern sense of the word. That it's classical East Asian martial arts combat strategy. Don't seek to overpower. Don't go yang on yang. Don't practice contestation. Avoiding the powerfully strong hand striking at you. And so instead of answering this question, like where does this quickness come from? O-sensei gives this statement, bullets from a gun will not touch me. Miura goes on, why is that? Does it have something to do with the power of the occult? Okay, so you can see he's still, he's still holding on to some of these ideas that are in theosophy. Maybe, maybe you are special. And to which O-sensei again answers in the classic Budo sense that there is a method and it is open to everyone. He answers no. The marksman takes aim, then at the moment that they release the safety before the actual bullet, an ethereal bullet strikes me somewhere on my body. At that moment, if I move my body slightly, then the actual bullets fly in the next instant and all pass by. Okay, so there's a lot there, but let's, get, let's focus in on the time. When does he move? He moves before the bullet is fired. He is not moving faster than the bullet. He is moving before the bullet is fired. He is moving at, let's say, the intention of the person firing the bullet. And the way these things work is, so when I have an intention to fire the bullet, I'm going to fire that round, and if you move, when I set my intention, if you move 
at a certain duration proximate to when that intention is manifested, I will not be able to physically stop myself from that initial intention, generate a new intention, and then fire to where you are now. It, it will not happen. There's a three-quarter second delay. We also know from that this delay also comes into play when we want to stop something or redo something or do something new. So there is a research institute called the Force Science Institute, and it has categorically demonstrated why has demonstrated scientifically why officers continue to fire rounds after what a third-party, uninvolved observer would say should have been the ending of that officer's firing. And it has to do with processing speeds and reprocessing speeds, and you can't stop these things like we think. So O-sensei is moving at that moment upon which the person's intention has locked them into the soon-to-be ensuing action. Now he describes it this way. That's what he's doing. This is how he describes it. That before the actual bullet is fired, an ethereal bullet strikes him somewhere on his body. So he's imagining or feeling or knowing where that intended round is going to be. And he's moving before the actual material bullet hits that spot. Let's go on to the next paragraph and, and then we'll comment more on that. Miura is continuing. I understand. Really? Is that right? Bullets also have an ethereal form. So in theosophy, the, the uh, body-mind, the being is, is separated into different forms. Ethereal form is one of them, astral form, material form. So clearly he's, he, it, Miura is exposed to these ideas here. This is the first time that I've heard of such a thing. I see. So, it's as, it's as I was thinking. You are divinely inspired. I would, I would like to ask something else. Whatever method one has, however fast they shift their body, in order to play with a larger and powerful man like a kitten, one must have a great deal of physical power. How much power can you muster? Okay, it looks like they changed subjects here. Let's, let's look at O-sensei's statement. Wow. 
when you look more broadly at the mystical tradition and people are describing things like this, I think what we need to notice is the commonality of the description models and also the difficulty that people have in coming up with their descriptions. And I think that we should also understand that language which is dependent upon the subject-object dichotomy is actually subverted and made impossible by the mystical experience, which is why in tradition after tradition we are told you can't intellectually understand it, it's beyond words. The Tao that can be named is not the Tao, etc. And yet we have times and cases where people that have had this experience go ahead and try to describe it. In my own practice, what I tell people is that what I'm about to say to you is total bullshit. It's for this reason. At best, I, I will say it's a pointer. But it can point you astray almost as much as it can point you in the right direction. So again, here at this point in the interview, we're talking about that ability to move earlier. for the sake of maintaining initiative, never being behind. Obviously, there is a martial imperative to initiative, to the, to the point where if you lose initiative, you probably are going to lose this contest. You can look at Boyd's OODA loop. You can look that up and you can see what that is all about, is maintaining the initiative. And the person who maintains, who gets through their OODA loop faster, maintains initiative, that person's going to win. Generally speaking, when you lose initiative, you are in an ambush, and probably the worst thing you can do is fight in an ambush. It is always going to be better to get out of the ambush. Prioritize that. So even if you are fighting, you're fighting your way out of the ambush. Why? Because you're not going to win the ambush. You lost the initiative. That, that view is all over the Sun Tzu. It's all over Gorin no Sho. It's all over Clausewitz. Napoleon, etc. It's even in the tripartite modern combat model of speed, surprise, and violence of action. Because generally, the person who has initiative has so great an advantage, they're going to win. So O-sensei is talking about that. 
And now he's trying to describe what that experience is like, what that knowing is like. And he talks about seeing a kind of ghost bullet that travels and he can see where it is. I don't think we ought to put so much weight on that because of the limitations of language, which is why I put that word knowing in quotation marks. I think he does feel something, but if you were to point and touch on his skin and you go, is this where you feel it? Is this how you feel it? He would say no. And I think each person tries to describe this in ways that are particular to them in the way that a poet makes their poems. So when I feel this knowing, it recalls to me what one of my professors said, that it's better to say a knowing. And he would do this play on language from gnosis. It's like to really know, to really know in your inner being is gnosis. So you know it. And what I'm trying to get at here is that if you try to pin down the person, that's where you're going to see the limitations of language because I tend to say I could feel it, but it's not like a touch. Or even I can see it, but it's not necessarily that it's being seen 100% limited to my eyes. And to those who experience it, it does look like you're moving first. But I have slowed it down like on, you know, slow motion filming. And you're, you're not actually moving first. But if you watch someone else do it, they're moving way after the attacker's moving. Way after. On slow motion, it looks like they're in a state of hypnosis and have been frozen and the attacker is moving and has entered way into their action cycle before they start to react. So if I watch it in slow motion and I can see these telltale signs, which we would come to call telegraphing, but even when they're... 
not poorly thrown attacks where you would normally associate telegraphing with that. It's just they're moving. Their mind is moving. Their breath is moving. Their eyes do a certain thing. Their chest does a certain thing. Their weight does a certain thing. You can see it all at slow motion, um, especially with multiple viewings. But I'll tell you what, when I do it, I don't see those things. I more feel the assault and I know what it's going to be. All right, so now we go on back to the piece, and he's talking about the power. How much power can you muster? Obviously, it's a question because he noted the size of the boxer, who's quite larger than O-sensei, and that's an obvious question. Here you are, this tiny person, and you can do this on this bigger person. Again, this is another difference that we do not generally see in Aikido today. So he's asking them, how much physical power can you generate? And he says, normally the same as a normal person. <laughs> But when I put some effort into it, I can carry around two bags of rice while we're in Geta without a problem. Really? Miura says. As I said that he summoned one of as I said that he summoned one of his students, he turned to the student who weighed between eighty-three kilograms and eighty-six kilograms and and said to the student, How many people was it yesterday that got on here? By here he meant on top of his extended right arm with the index finger supported by a chopstick stuck into the hibachi. All right, so that's a little... So he, he's doing this kind of parlor trick where he, people are on his arm and he's keeping it a chopstick off of the ground over, over a hibachi. And the student answered, it was three people. What? I don't even need the chopstick then. <laughs> said Mr. Oeshiba. In any case, three men climbed on top of his extended right arm, which he held out with no noticeable strain. It would be as if we were doing the same with the bag of rice times a factor of 10. Okay, let's pull out some things again that Miura is seen in 1932. So he is able to generate a stabilizing power with a great force output or potential, and he's able to do it without noticeable strain. Again, that is very different from what we generally see today. And I would again put before you that it is because we are using a different method. If you look at the time 
of Ueshiba in other arts, let's say the traditional Chinese martial arts or the internal Chinese martial arts, this kind of stuff is not unique. In fact, he's, Miura is describing something that is often an end or at least a beginning manifestation of skill in these other arts. The capacity to maintain and generate a force without noticeable strain. Seeing my surprise, this is what Mr. Ueshiba said. However strong the opponent is, when I stand to face them, the power to overcome them, power that I don't understand myself, comes forth. Moreover, I don't know anything about what kind of art Shinto Ryu is, but when I contest with Shinto Ryu's Mr. Otsuka, my hands become completely Shinto Ryu hands. When I meet with the Judoka, my hands become the hands of Judo. What do you mean? said Miura. I become completely transparent. The opponent is transformed into their ethereal body, and I am possessed by my guardian spirit. The other person disappears, and I am just attacked by their hands and form. The more that the other person's shugyo has progressed, the greater their ethereal body and the guardian spirit. So I must also become greater. In any case, the state of my heart when facing an opponent is as transparent as a mirror. So in this state, the other person's spirit is perfectly reflected. All right. Let's compare what O-sensei is saying here to mysticism and the mystical experience, generally speaking. So mysticism denotes a kind of communion, but of a particular kind, it is a communion that comes about in the disillusion of self. Different traditions speak about this differently. Some will talk about when you are able to dissolve the self or let go of the self or reconcile the self or detach from the self, etc., etc. The Holy Spirit will enter into you. You're like you become passive. It's not that you go get the Holy Spirit. It's that you do the self-reconciliation, and then this force moves in or this energy or this spirit moves in. Or a grace moves in. So in some Christian traditions that practice mysticism, you don't save yourself. What happens is you learn to dissolve yourself and then the grace of God will move in you and the grace of God saves you. So, in other words, at the level of self-reconciliation, your agency ends. 
Of course, right? In other traditions, such as in Omotokyo, it is described as you become possessed by this guardian spirit. Again, your agency ends. So you are able to act, but it is not your agency upon or through which you are acting. He says, I become completely transparent. His form, the form of O Sensei, dissolves. The subjective experience of his materiality is leaving him. And then he's filled by this guardian spirit. And the other person disappears. So he disappears, his material sense of self. And with the wiping away or the dissolving of the borders of his material self, a kind of oneness or a communion between him and the other starts to take place. And the other disappears as well. And so even though he doesn't know anything about Shinto Ryu, he starts to move exactly like Shinto Ryu. He moves exactly like the other person because he's become one with that person. They move together. And the same thing happens when it's a judoka. It's not that he learns Shinto Ryu or he learns judo. It's that he disappears, and he becomes one with their movement. As I said, this is not mixed martial arts. This is solving the problem of specialization and its related ignorance. through mystical communion. He says, in any case, the state of my heart when facing an opponent is as transparent as a mirror. So in this state, the other person's spirit is perfectly reflected. The mirror is a metaphor used over and over in mystical traditions. This I put before you is Aiki.
And if you draw a distinction between institutional Aikido and you want to just use the words and you want to say the way of Aiki and or you want to say O-sensei's way of Aiki, then this is what you're talking about. And this reconciliation of the subject-object dichotomy or this deconstruction of the self-subject-object construct is not unique to O-sensei. Nor is it an ideal that was posited by him first or even first in his century. And so Miura ends the interview and he goes on. I see that is the secret of the void in Miyamoto Musashi's Nito Ichiryu. Here also you have an agreement with Miyamoto Musashi. Wherever he went, and whatever contest he participated in, Musashi would be victorious in the challenge, so I am told. Again, there's that that aspect to this. It's not a philosophy, and therefore it can and should be as a validation manifested in contest, in combat. Miura is continuing. The secret of the void in Miyamoto Musashi's Nito Ichiryu is the secret of every great religion and also the secret of the way of the kami, the secret of Christ who became divine at the age of 30. Obviously, there's that theosophical leanings. This is how Musashi explains it. So here Christopher Lee is going to give the translation of, um, I think it's Victor Harris. So Miura gave uh, a translation of the Book of Void, or gave a, you know, a writing of the Book of Void, and then Christopher Lee is using Victor's um, translation. So this is Miura. The Nito Ichiwe of strategy is recorded in this, the Book of Void. What is called the spirit of the void is where there is nothing. It is not included in man's knowledge. Of course, the void is nothingness. By knowing things that exist, you can know that which does not exist. That is the void. All right, we have to stop there. So here we have that concept of knowing, right? As he says, it is not included in man's knowledge. It's, be, it's, it's beyond our normal no, way of knowing. Then another thing that he says here is he goes ahead and describes what I labeled a negative concept. 
in the last podcast. By knowing things that exist, you can know that which does not exist. That is the void. And that is exactly how I described that last last week. This is an ancient way of thinking. We don't really use negative concepts today, but pre-modern way had no problem. And I imagine in realms like theoretical physics, they make use of them there too. It's just not common for us to use them anymore. Continuing, people in this world look at things mistakenly and think that what they do not understand must be the void. This is not the true void. It is bewilderment. Okay, so Musashi's drawing a distinction between when we just don't understand versus things that are beyond knowledge, things that are gnowing. This is important because in Japanese history, uh, even with uh, in Zen, uh, Zen is the way beyond all words. All right, it was about direct practical experience. And you will read a lot of uh, EQ, a Zen master, that was very critical of how people would start acting like they were just jackasses and idiots. And uh, because the folklore of Zen would hold these people up as ideals, and so people started acting like idiots and then, you know, would be considered, oh, this must be a master. Look, it's an idiot. He's beyond knowing. And here, Aniki was very critical of that, and he would tell people, you know, awakening is not being a jackass or an idiot. And here we have Musashi saying something very similar, which means people did take this approach. Continuing, in the way of strategy also, those who study as warriors think that whatever they cannot understand in their craft is the void. This is not the true void. Musashi's getting to something else. To attain the way of strategy as a warrior, you must study fully other martial arts and not deviate even a little from the way of the warrior. With your spirit settled, accumulate practice day by day and hour by hour. Polish the twofold spirit, heart, and mind, and sharpen the twofold gaze, perception, and sight. When your spirit is not in the least clouded, when the clouds of bewilderment clear away, there is the true void. Until you realize the true way, whether in Buddhism or in common sense, you may think that things are correct and in order. However, if we look at things objectively from the viewpoint of laws of the world, we see various doctrines departing from the true way. Know well this spirit and with forthrightness as the foundation and the true spirit as the way. Enact strategy broadly, correctly, and openly. To me, that's the charge against what I'm going to call institutional Aikido. When he says, however, if we look at things objectively from the viewpoint of laws of the world, we see various doctrines departing from the true way. Continuing, then you will come to think of things in a wide sense, and taking the void as the way, you will see the way as void. In the void is virtue and no evil. Wisdom has existence 
Principle has existence. The way has existence. Spirit is nothingness. Then Ryura goes on with his own words. These words did not in any way come from Zen Buddhism. They are, outstand- they are an outstanding state of mind coming from Musashi's personal experiences. Since these words from the four-dimensional world are far above and beyond the domain of logical philosophy, if one reads them with normal common sense, they will not be able to grasp the secret. One will be able to grasp their intent even less when considering them philosophically or scientifically. The words are simple, but they reach the meaning. It is the world that appears from polishing, deepening, lifting up the way, strategy, art, and actual life to its limits. Void as the way, the way as void is the way that appears from the transcendent world, and the transcendent world appears from the perfection of the way. That which does not exist in this world appears through the perfection of the way, that is to say, the manifestation of the kami. Until now, Mr. Ueshiba has devoted himself not only to Kendo, but also to the way. His strenuous efforts to the present day have actually been the shugyo of the way. He spent many hard years in training the way through certain Urat's religions, I'm sorry, Ursat's religions, but in the end, that word means like um, less than real, fake, false. But in the end, it was through ancient Shinto that he reached the way of the kami and realized the secrets of kendo. When his training in kendo reached the stage of the kami and of the way, and I'm sorry, let's stop there because I think I'm seeing something else. Just as a kind of side historical note here, the first part here where he says, uh, these words did not come in any way from Zen Buddhism. And then this phrase, Ursat's religions, and in the end it was through ancient Shinto. Uh, let's note that around 1932, it probably, it was not very popular to be Buddhist or to lift up Buddhism. Because um, leading up to and following through the Meiji Restoration in 1868, um, the new reinstated imperial government made use of a pro-Japanese ideology and one that included the denouncing and rejecting of all things foreign and Buddhism was a foreign religion, even though it had been there from the start. And I think that's what we're seeing here in Miura, is he's trying to separate Musashi from Zen Buddhism and then uh, having Osensei go through these false religions to ancient Shinto. Because it's not historically accurate to separate these things. That was a political play 
by put forth by the Meiji government and uh, later picked up by academics. So that's interesting. All right, here we go. When his training in Kendo reached the stage of the way of the kami entering form and escaping form, so there you there you have it. There is also shuhari, which we talked about last week. Entering form, shu, and escaping form. Um, ha. He attained the realization that all schools of Kendo become one, ri. So remember, my definitions were form, deconstruction of form, and the reconciliation of form and non-form. So there it is, entering form, escaping form. He attained the realization that all schools of Kendo become one. It is because Mr. Ueshiba's realization that... I'm sorry, I did that wrong. It is because Mr. Ueshiba's Budo has actually reached this realm of the Kami that the forms are not set. Actually, even now, in the way of the Kami, secret methods are being created one after the other. Progress is made day after day. This is the way of the Kami. One can know the way of the Kami through form, but one cannot enter there without surpassing form. For that reason, in Miyamoto Musashi's strategy and the secrets of Kendo, the mind is the ruler. The rest are methods for learning the way directly to the mind. Materialism crumbles before this amazing truth. Okay, here we have another discrepancy with modern institutional Aikido, and that is its reliance and its tendency towards reifying form. And we can again see, we see that in O-sensei's Aikido, in this true Budo, in this Budo that Kano saw, it is of such a nature that one cannot enter there without surpassing form. Moreover, the method... The method is for learning the way directly to the mind. So here the locale of the method is totally different between institutional Aikido and O-sensei's martial art. In O-sensei's martial art, the method is aimed at the user. And in institutional Aikido, effort is aimed at the institution. It's one reason why my own understanding of Aikido cannot and should not include any sort of defining or limiting characteristic that is based upon waza or tactical architectures. But in institutional Aikido, that is very much what is done. Continuing, 
In Mr. Ashiba's contest, the opponent becomes an ethereal body and a guardian spirit possesses Mr. Ashiba's empty heart. So there's the emptying. He empties himself. The guardian spirit comes in and the opponent becomes this other kind of transparent thing. This type of language is something that someone who does not practice spiritual philosophy or spiritualism will not understand but that this would be clear to someone researching Japanese ancient Shinto, Shinto cannot be doubted. So there's more of that political climate. But it is true. Modern man, post-epistemic shift, the adoption of a materialistic worldview, the idea of a mechanistic reality, these things do get in the way of this very possible ancient experience. And we experience it all the time. That perfect first kiss with your perfect first lover, do you not lose yourself? Do you not have... This kind of transporting experience. People have ecstatic moments all the time. Some happen just in the coincidences of life. Some are produced chemically. I don't think the experience should be so denounceable. I think what we're seeing here, though, is it's going beyond that in this in two ways. One, that a person that practices that practices this method can develop this experience at will and within the context of human versus human violence the latter is important because in my experience The context of human versus human violence is of such a nature that there are very, view, very few other contexts wherein egocentrism is not what is generally practiced. Meaning, if you can develop a self-reconciliation skill and practice it within human versus human violence, then you can pretty much practice that everywhere. And at all times. Back to the piece. When the 157 centimeter tall Mr. Oeshiba faced large and powerful opponents of 193 centimeters and more, the other people were also quite strong. However, in the midst of the engagement, he was able to see a white body that had fallen on the ground and the opponent would fall into that white body without being pushed or controlled. 
No, again, this is another disparity or discrepancy between institutional Aikido and Osensei's martial art. To the observer, the person is not being pushed or manipulated in a way that the observer would call it controlled. Again, if you go to other arts, let's take the traditional internal Chinese martial arts, they're going to go, yeah, of course. But if you look at contemporary institutional Aikido, that's all you see. Pushing and wrestling, yang on yang and contestation. But here is an observer saying, when he looked at Osensei in 1932, he didn't see that. Back to the piece. The opponent's ethereal body had separated from their physical body and could be seen on the ground by Mr. Ueshiba's spiritual eye. In a manner of speaking, his soul had already broken out and been defeated. So the matter of the physical body is clothing for the ethereal body. The ethereal body is clothing for the spiritual body. If the physical body dies, then we live as the ethereal body. But at some point, as it progresses along the way, the ethereal body dies and melts into the spiritual body. I believe in theosophy that spiritual body is called the astral body. Humans living in the physical body can also open themselves up to consciousness of the soul as the ethereal body as they progress mentally. And as they further refine themselves, they can open themselves to the consequences of the spirit, to the consciousness of the spirit. Further consciousness of the soul or the spirit surpasses the normal consciousness of human beings and brings with it great power and wisdom. When the literary giant Goethe said, I met myself, it was that he saw his own ethereal body that had broken free from his physical body. There are many actual examples even in Japan today. Look, in 1932, he's saying exactly the same thing. People do have these experiences. The consciousness of the spirit in the spiritual body more easily senses artistic beauty and, it, and is e an even further refinement over the consciousness of the ethereal body in the soul. As in Plato's conception of music as stirring the soul, the correct perspective is to think of the world of ideas setting our spirits on fire. Through this one through this, one can truly understand that all true philosophers and great artists are mysterious mystics. When one reaches the level of Moritaka Ueshiba in Kendo, one's goal is not to conquer or kill others. Further, it is not simply a matter of protecting one's own body. Mr. Ueshiba's Kendo is not a process of competition of the physical body. It is something transcendental of the ethereal body the way of the kami leading to a shining inner light. While training in the sword, he often had the experience of becoming surrounded with a purple light, his breath becoming one with all things. That is to say, reaching the extremities of kendo, said to be the realm in which one enters the consciousness of the spirit surpassing the physical body. Currently, Mr. Ueshiba, oh, let's stop there for a second. 
So this, I think this is important because I think this is a, a, co a correct understanding of O-sensei's understanding of his own art. So Miura is saying, Ueshiba in Kendo, his goal is not to conquer or kill others. Furthermore, it is not simply a matter of protecting one's own body, meaning self-defense. This is true. The goal is this skill in mystical communion. But as the method is the technology of Budo, that skill in mystical communion should manifest itself within the context of combat. So, very true. O-sensei's martial art is a Budo. And very true. The point is not conquering or killing others, nor is the point self-defense. But also equally true, this mystical communion should be able to manifest itself within the human versus human violence context. Continuing, the way of the kami leading to a shining inner light. While training in the sword, he often had the experience of... Oh, we did that one. Let's go to the last paragraph. Currently, Mr. Ueshiba instructs military personnel in Kendo and members of the imperial household in Budo. At the dojo in Ushigome, in addition to nameless youths and young Kodokan 5th and 6th dons, major generals, lieutenant generals, and admirals are enrolling as students. If the technique is from the way of the kami, whether one calls it kendo, judo, sumo, it is all instruction in the mysteries. This, the mysteries for theosophy are the mystical traditions. Okay, so here is Miura and he's saying, he, he's telling you, it, I don't care what you call it. And in fact, if you call it something and you get stuck on the name, you are basically missing the point. He says, if the technique is from the way of the kami, whether one calls it kendo, judo, or sumo, it is all instruction in the mysteries. In the past few days, I have seen a famous sumo wrestler more than 2 meters, 13 centimeters in height, puzzled and confused as he was reversed and thrown by a small man who had just begun to train as a student of Mr. Ueshiba. Oh, well, there you go. There is a method. This guy hasn't even been exposed to it that long, and he's already tossing around this giant sumo wrestler. Again, another discrepancy with institutional Aikido. 
finishing the piece. One can see how extraordinary this is. Nowadays, even the daughter of Mr. Chigaku Tanaka has come to be seen regularly at training. That ends the piece. In closing, what is important to remember is that ancient man saw a practicality in the dissolvement of the self and in the mystical communion experience. And that is quite different how we think about it today. But it is a fact That there are things we can do via this experience that we cannot do outside of it. And in a more broader point of view, to see the way in all things is to understand that we can not only do our art differently, but we can live our lives differently. And even more than that, that via this skill at mystical communion, this skill in self-detachment, in self-reconciliation, that with this skill we can live in an entirely different world, one that is equally reconciled. This concludes this episode of Budo, the Way of the Warrior podcast. For more information, please visit SensionCenter.com, S-E-N-S-H-I-N-C-E-N-T-E-R.com, or find us at Facebook at Sension Center and on our YouTube channel at Sension One. Thank you for listening.